everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Scoop Rewind podcast brought to you by PPG. Tonight, looking at a closer look at Game 4 of the Stanley Cup Final in 2009. Pens and the Detroit Red Wings. The cast of characters remaining the same. Michelle Crecchiolo, Paul Staggerwald, Sam Kassan. We all have lower thirds. We all have our faces. We're moving ahead with the times. And guys, Peng was trying to keep the momentum going there from Game 3 to Game 4. Something they were not able to do the year before when they played the Red Wings in 08, and Detroit took a three games to one lead in game number four. Yeah, they really need to flip the script this time around. You, you look back, you kind of saw history repeating itself. Yeah, the 2008 series, the Red Wings obviously defended home ice, won the first two. Pittsburgh defended home ice in game three, but really the pivotal moment was they lost that game four. Put them way behind the eight ball, then you're asking yourself, you have to beat Detroit three times in a row, which is a tall task. Even though they almost, man, came inches shy in that game six, but... It really came down to this game four and the Penguins flipping it. They gave themselves a fighting chance with that game three victory, but if they really had any aspirations of winning the Stanley Cup, they had to win this game four. And not an easy thing to do, you know, when you're uh, in a situation where you go home. A lot of times the visiting team is thinking, if we just get a split here, we'll be in good shape in the playoffs. That's what the Penguins were thinking when they went into Detroit for the first two games. But even though they played well, they came up empty. So they really put themselves in a tough situation going home. But clearly, they gained a lot of confidence from what they did in game three. Even though there was a big storm that they had the weather in the first period of game four, clearly you could see that the Penguins were gaining confidence and believing that if they kept playing their game, they'd have a chance to win. This goes off to what we've been talking about so much with experience is that, you know, just reading the comments from the players uh, after game three, just they saying how they knew uh, how big game four is now because of losing it last year. And it's just amazing. You go through it one time and you just immediately have this foundation to build off of. So I think that was hugely helpful for the guys that had been in the locker room uh, with the Penguins the year before. Misha, was your- is there any reason why you're wearing red today, Michelle? Or- <laughs> I was wondering if you guys were going to notice, <laughs> which how could you not? I mean, it's- but I figured, you know, with this being the first uh, video uh, recording of this podcast, I had to represent my Red Wings because I'm not going to lie, you guys, it is kind of tough to go back and revisit these losses for the team I grew up cheering for. So I gotta, this is my way of showing support to that Red Wings team by by wearing red. <laughs> well, Mish, were you confident going into game four? I mean, where was your head at as a Red Wings fan? Because obviously it was pretty much went the same track as far as 2008, but it had a different feel to it, I'd say, in the first three games. Well, I think, you know, Saggy, you've actually touched on this a couple times, but you just look at the statistics and the numbers of a team that wins the first two games of a series uh, that, you know, things are usually going to tilt in their favor. And I think, you know, having, you know, with it having followed that same script up to this point, I think everyone in Detroit felt pretty good, especially too with, you know, the the young guys that have been stepping up. Like, you know, I mentioned Justin Abdelkader in the first couple games and, you know, Darren Holm is someone who got in the scoreboard in this game for the Red Wings, uh, you know, things like that. So I think in Detroit, we were feeling pretty good because history, I think, was on our side. When you think about the onslaught, as Staggy described it, that Detroit had in the first period, it all came after the fact that the Penguins did carry some of that momentum over from game three to game four. And I know that's a taboo subject in the playoffs. We never talk about there being momentum from one game to the next. But I think it's fair to say there was, and there was a ton of confidence all playoffs from Evgeny Malkin. He draws that penalty a minute and 12 seconds in. And then, ironically enough, I don't know what you guys thought, looking back on it and seeing the replay, the end wall, the backboards, with a weird bounce at Mellon Arena, not at Joe Lewis Arena, off a shot right to Gino, and he puts it in. Yeah, and boy, I'll tell you, uh, the Penguins' power play was a huge factor in this series. and. When Gino scored that goal, if I'm not mistaken, they were then four for seven on the power play in the series. That's outrageous. If you can score like that on the power play in the Stanley Cup final, you got a good chance of winning. You know, you talk about special teams and goaltending. And of course, this game was a total special teams victory for the Penguins. We'll get into that later, but it started with the power play goal by Gino and got the place rocking again. And yes, it was a carryover momentum wise from game three to game four. Um, and, you know, it had to have the, the Red Wings wondering what they had to do to stop the Penguins' power play because it was spectacular. And I just keep pointing to Sergei Gonchar. I mean, that guy was so great on the power play. He was the reason. He's the quarterback. He lugged the puck. He 
was so brilliant at straddling the blue line with it, knew just when to move the puck. Uh, it, it was really fun to watch him, you know, basically putting on a clinic on how to run a power play. You talk about, again, I'll throw a little red meat to Nish here in a second. Uh, considering <laughs> that really Malkin initiated the contact and then it was the penalty that went against him. But beside the point, there was a, there, they probably should have been a penalty called seconds earlier on Gino anyway that the Penguins should have got a power play. So it kind of evened out that they did get the power play. But Malkin draws the penalty. He wins a wall battle. So before he even gets there, he wins the wall battle, sets up stall in the slot. And as this plays is going, he circles around the net and just kind of gets in the blue paint area. And, and then the alertness is that puck came firing off the boards for him to track it, locate it, and get that quick snapshot. And then I think he was mid-celebration before Chris Osgood even knew the puck was in the net because Osgood was jumping back and the puck was already over the line. Gino's throwing his arms and Osgood's looking over his shoulder. Like, I swear Malcolm was like mid-celebration before Osgood even knew the puck was in. I mean, it, that just shows you the intelligence. Also, like, like I said, he started the play by – drawing the penalty, wins the puck battle, sets up stall in the slot, then goes around the net and gets the, uh, the Aaron shot from uh, Crystal Tang to bat it in. Just, just an overall, Evgeny Malkin just taking over on that play. Well, I know I had to definitely watch a couple times before I knew it was in, and I knew it was coming. I mean, it was that quick that it happened. But uh, it's funny, Sam, you posted on the Penguins website today, um, you know, in your what to watch for for this game, you put Evgeny Malkin drew an early power play the, for the Penguins. Did he initiate the contact? Yes. Did he get a favorable call? Yes. Were the Penguins complaining? Nope. And I just wrote, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, and I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, but I think, you know, us going back and rewatching this is bringing up a lot. Obviously, we're discussing it, but I think, you know, it stood out to me the most rewatching the series is just how dominant Gino was in every sense. I mean, he was just so consistently a factor in every facet. I mean, I think we talk about the series against Carolina as being his best and rightfully so, but I mean, I feel like he was just all over the place in this series too, just truly putting the Penguins on his back in every regard. I agree. And I, I, I thought he was playing a very smart game too. If you watch him, he was not turning pucks over or forcing offense uh, a whole lot. He seemed to be really thinking out there. The wheels were turning in his head, which I think is a, you know, an indication that he's really capable of doing that. We've seen him kind of revert to that mode more this season after the long talk he had with Mike Sullivan and stuff. But, I, you know, I think he's kind of gained a reputation of being kind of a not very good at puck management. Let's put it that way. But I thought he did a really good job uh, in this game in particular. He was good in that area. He wasn't really forcing offense or turning pucks over. Seemed to be able to slow the pace down in his head and, and physically slow it down to a way where he could really be effective. Well, people might forget, too, that 0809, obviously, Evgeny Malkin won the scoring title that year. He also won the playoff MVP for a reason, but people forget he also led the league in takeaways. So he was scoring a ton of points in the regular season, but he led the league during that year in takeaways because he was so good defensively then. And, you know, maybe he's put less emphasis or less concentration on that as his career has gone. But as Staggy just mentioned, it seems like he re-emphasized that more this season than any, any point since then. And he was a dominant force both in the defensive zone and the offensive zone. I mean, he was just – he was a monster, really. You, you, no, nobody could really handle him. I mean, if they're uh, – as a defensive player, he's stealing the puck from you. He's all in your face. He's got that long reach and that stick. He's getting that stick in lanes, and he was intercepting passes left and right. Even in this game, he intercepts a pass and goes on a breakaway as time is expiring in a period. But that, I think people tend to forget how good defensively he was in those early couple of years, especially that entire 08-09 season. And – I think a lot of that carried over in the playoffs and led a lot to his offensive success. Reminds me, Sam, a um, long time ago when Scotty Bowman was coaching the Penguins, he said to me one day, offensive players can be really good defensive players because they're good at stripping the puck from the opposition. That was a thing I never forgot when he told me that. You know, I think of Mario in that regard. But the really skilled players, you look at Pavel Datsuk, who was not playing in this series at this point, He's a master at the same things. He was known for his defensive play, his ability to strip the puck from people. So it's using the skill, the offensive stick skills that a player has to be a good defensive player. And that's exactly what Malkin was uh, throughout that playoff run. He's just a true genetic specimen. I actually had the chance to sit in the stands uh, for the Penguins 600th sellout earlier this year. Uh, when the Penguins played Boston in that comeback game. And I actually had an entire row of Bruins fans behind me. 
And it's just so funny because the entire time, all they could talk about was how they couldn't get over how big Gina was. Like seeing him, you know, that close and in person, there's like, my God, Malkin, he's a beast. Like, look how big he is. Like they could not like, you know, get over it. So I think, you know, something when he's at his best, he's, he's using that size, he's using everything you guys just mentioned. And he truly did that in the series for sure. You know what else I thought was cool? I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, I noticed you know, after he'd gotten in that fight uh, at, at the end of game two, or in, in game two, that when there was a whistle or whatever, he would go wade in to see if he could draw a penalty. It wasn't like he was going in there to initiate. He was kind of backing in and looking like he was just sort of arriving there, you know what I mean? But he knew that if he went there, somebody was going to engage him. And so he was sort of kind of to draw the attention of the Red Wings to take a penalty. But, I mean, that's what I mean about him being really thinking in the, you know, these games. He wasn't just playing purely on instinct. He seemed to be really using his brain a lot out there. I think also one thing that jumped out to me, not just in game four, and I know we'll get to it very soon when we talk about this game, but he was killing penalties. When's the last time you remember Gino killing penalties? Kind of to your point, Sam, about his defensive style and his game and maybe that being a little underlooked. I don't remember since I've come to the Penguins of Kenny Malkins taking one shift on the penalty <laughs> kill. I would bet that he is not in those five, six seasons. But there he is out there in game four of the Stanley Cup final. I mean, I think it speaks to how much the coaching staff trusted him, what he had established as far as his overall play, and then obviously what he had been evolved into from that whole playoff run as far as the complete player aspect. Well, he was a penalty killer when he played in Russia. I mean, he had had a lot of experience at it. In fact, when he came over, people talked about it. But the big thing was, you know, you didn't want to have your, your offensive players overtaxed. So that was kind of the thinking. And that's why, you know, you haven't seen Sid do it. Plus, you you don't want to put guys in positions to be blocking shots and getting hurt. So it seems like. But that team had some great killers, some great well, national you know, killers. That's what I'm saying. You have him out there. That, that kind of speaks to where he was at, right? Now, when he got the breakaway, um, that led to the ultimately to the shorthanded goal. Um, that was in a four-on-four situation, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So uh, he, was, he was in the box. It was five-on-three for like. Right. He was in the box, and he came out. He came out. Yeah. yeah. He came out. Okay, got it. And when he came out, uh, did it? Did it ever? Five on three ended. So what was it at that point? When Malcolm drew that penalty, was he a penalty killer or was it a four-on-four four situation? We're getting ahead here, but we'll get to it later. But but that was one time where I, when I saw the, the highlights the first time, then I went back and looked at the game. When I looked at the highlights, I thought he was in a penalty killing mode. But when I watched the game, I just, we can check it again later, but I thought it was a four on four. Yeah, that was a, that was a, Orpik took a penalty. Or Gino, Malkin took a penalty. Then with a second or two seconds left, Orpik took a penalty. So Malkin came out of the box. So it was a five on three for two seconds. So Malkin came out of the box, intercepted the pass, went in on his opportunity, and then saw literally on the. Thanks for clarifying that. So he was in a penalty killing mode, but I don't think he would necessarily have been a penalty killer. It's just happened that he came out of the box. So that, yeah, that's fair. I'm just pointing to the, the grand scope of the series that he was featured on the penalty kill in the games. Yes, you watch the full games, you'll see that he was on the kill a few times, which is awesome. I'm glad, you know, and that's a great observation. Well, in any event, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. We mentioned all the shots and all the opportunities for Detroit. You look at the first period, 30 shots on goal in total. Detroit had 19 of them. Eddie Olchick said on the broadcast that he felt that the game four was the tightest checked game of the first four in that first period. Curious for your guys' perspective on that, because when you see 30 shots, I think your initial thought, if you're not necessarily paying attention to the details within the game, is probably pretty wide open. There's probably a lot of offensive opportunities. Can it be both? Can it be tight checking with opportunities to be had at both ends? Well, I think most of the opportunities, if you go back, the grade A opportunities, I don't, don't think were there. Um, tracking, I know there was a, a sequence halfway through the first where Flair had to make a couple saves. Stopped, uh, uh, I believe it was home, and then Cleary twice from point blank. But uh, and then obviously the Detroit gets the goal late in the period on a on a bad giveaway by Rob Scuderi, which is very uncharacteristic of him during that playoff series. 
But uh, but I thought a lot of the opportunities were more on the perimeter, just putting the shit puck, puck on net. And uh, it was pretty tight. But would you notice, too, when they would put the puck on net, you create these rebounds, and the best opportunities came off of some of those rebound plays. Like I said, Dan Cleary got two point blank opportunities after Darren Helms just sends what seems like a harmless shot on net. So the, the clock, the, the shots may have been pretty high. I thought it was overall tight, but I did do think I agree with you, Josh. It was it was tight, but there was also some opportunities. It wasn't like it was a zero zero defensive struggle where no one could get anything going. Yeah, I was Helm and, and, and McCleary. They were dangerous that entire game, really. But in the first period, great chances. Uh, they were younger players with really good legs, and they were really, I thought, among the better players for the Red Wings in those two games in Pittsburgh. You mentioned that sequence, uh, you know, talking about Cleary and Helm. And I got to say, it's interesting for me to go back to this because I think this is where I really started to dislike Marc-Andre Fleury, which now <laughs> going back, I think uh, we can all agree he's probably uh, one of our favorite human beings of all time. Uh, but, you know, this is where I felt like he just was locked in. Like, I think in the other games, there were times he looked frantic, chaotic. Uh, but I think, you know, at this point, this, you know, sequence here, um, you know, where the Red Wings were getting a lot of shots, you know, quality and not quality, but he was still strong. And I think that's where, I don't know, he just turned a corner, I think, in, in being that solid brick wall back there for, for the Penguins. And I'm curious as to what when uh, Staggy, you and Sam think about just the criticism he had been facing going into that game and just how he responded to it with the way he played, um, you know, just weathering the storm there for stretches against the Red Wings when they tried to respond after the Penguins scored. Thought he looked awesome and he looked really under control. He didn't look like he was flailing around too much. I thought his game was really kind of tight in the crease and he had, you know, he's good on the posts and, and, you know, he was playing in a way that I thought he played. Remember, he went through those tough years after the Penguins won the Cup in 09 where he seemed to lose some of his game when Thomas Vokun had to play in place of him and so on. Uh, but he was looking very under control, I thought, in this uh, game, just as he had in, in really in game three. So, um, that was important because obviously they had 19 shots in the first period. I mean, he, he had to make a lot of saves. Cleary and Helm were two of the more dangerous guys, but everybody was seen to be uh, causing problems. Uh, you know, I don't know how many different guys had shots in that period, but anytime any team gets 19 shots, you know your goaltender had to really stand on his head. I think that really stood out. It kind of reminds me of um... – you guys remember when Matt Murray was going in the the sixteen and seventeen final, where he would go and and maybe the the opponent would get a second goal on him early in the second period, but you knew that was it. You knew he was going to shut the door and just slam it shut, and and there was nothing else he was going to give. Or maybe he gives up a bad goal, you know, in, in the early in the third period, but then you know from there he's going to make every save, every save that you need. That kind of is what it reminds me of when that goaltender, because because he gave up. If you look at even game three, gives up the second goal fairly early. And then Detroit never gets another goal. And in this game, Detroit takes the lead 2-1, just 50-whatever-odd seconds it is into the uh, 40 some 46 seconds into the second period. Detroit takes the lead 2-1. But at the time, there's 40 minutes of hockey still to play. At the, now we look back and say, man, he slammed the door shut. But at the time, you kind of had that feeling like he was going to do that. You know, it was, it was kind of a tough goal to give up. I know there was a double screen, uh, both, by the way, Penguin players, <laughs> double screen their own goaltender. So a tough goal to give up, but you kind of had that feeling the way he was riding then that he was going to slam the door shut. And I think the thing with Flurry at that time was he seemed to be a different goaltender at home and on the road. So on the road, he seemed seemed a little more frantic, a little more, I don't know, he, he could get off his game a little more. Where at home, he seemed much more confident, much more poised, much more shut down. So at home, I think there was that feeling, certainly. And then on the road, he could have his shaky moments at times. Sometimes he'd be good, sometimes he'd be bad. It depended. He was kind of a roller coaster on the road, um, as we'll talk about when we get to game five. But uh, <laughs> sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. But I think at home, through the entire, really, that entire playoff run, he was excellent. And I think that was part of the reason why. Boy, uh, he certainly had a lot of traffic in front of him. I mean, you know, Holmstrom and also the mule on Franzen was in front of him a lot. So uh, he had more to think about than just the puck. Uh, that, that, and the Red Wings were pretty good at getting pucks to the point and getting shots through. Um, you know, I, I was impressed with their ability to do that. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why they had 19 shots. I mean, they were getting shots from all over the place. And Flurry had to deal with a lot of that traffic in front of him. So I, I thought he did a really good job of maintaining his focus 
because you know it seemed like every time you looked up there was somebody practically leaning on him you know and he had to kind of fight that off to be able to see the puck Detroit did get on the board late in the first period uh, I think Sam alluded to it earlier the turnover by Rob Scuderi Darren Helm scores what are you three thinking at that moment because we talked about how Detroit came on as that period came on all of a sudden the wings at four on four tie the game and now all of a sudden you're back to a one one score with the Penguins playing with the lead all period but not necessarily playing with the lead in the yes. sense of how they were approaching it. So how did you guys view it at that point? Well, right after they tied the game in the four on four, Helm getting the goal and I talked about Helm and Cleary. Cleary had a fantastic scoring opportunity right on the doorstep. He could have made it two to one before the buzzer. So the Penguins, I think, I mean, if I'm looking at it now, I don't know how I felt at the time, I can't remember, but I can tell you this, it would be one one, I mean, you'd rather be one nothing, but they could easily have been behind after 20 minutes. So I think it was kind of a victory to be able to have weathered that storm and come out on even terms with a team that had done everything. And, you know, when I look back on it now, I, I hate to keep bringing this up, but it's I'm sure Michelle appreciates it. <laughs> but if you have a team that registers 19 shots on goal and they're missing one of their offensive geniuses, Pavel Datsuk, and you got to figure if he's in the game, Maybe he gets a goal in that sequence. You know, you like to make hay while the sun shines. You're not going to have, you know, three periods where you dominate like that and have 19 shots on goal. So that was really where the Red Wings could have taken control of the hockey game. They didn't. And if they had had Pavel Datsuk, maybe he's the difference. Maybe he's a guy who makes that one last great play to give somebody a great scoring chance, or he finishes off one of those opportunities and the Red Wings are sitting pretty after 20 minutes. And I think, Josh, going back to your point about it being a tight checking game, it just felt like the Penguins were on the better end of that. I feel like there were, you know, there was a moment where Matt Cook just ran Nick Lidstrom into the backboards and Lidstrom gets up and he's got his arms up and he wants a penalty and they didn't call one. They're playing him really hard. Um, it just felt like the wings kept almost falling and, and looking slow. And just even though they had 19 shots, it, it just didn't feel like they had their legs under them necessarily. And with the way Marc-Andre Fleury was playing and how he was shutting the door, I don't think... Uh, any Red Wings fans felt good coming out of that period. I think the you see when uh, they had a, a quick shot as the camera swung away of Mark Eaton cross-checking uh, Thomas Holmstrom down in the corner. No penalty. <laughs> I mean, they were getting, you know, let's face it, they just weren't calling everything. I mean, that was it's playoff hockey. Um, and, and normally it's not the Penguins initiating that stuff. It's usually them on the receiving end of those things, which I think was an important factor in why the Penguins, uh, you know, had success. I think they were a more physical team, you know, with guys like Matt Cook. And, you know, Mark Eaton was a physical defenseman, and Jordan Stahl could play a physical game. And, you know, you had a lot of guys who were willing to pay the price physically and initiate out there. And I think when you do that, uh, you have a better chance to win. You want to be the team retaliating in the playoffs. And I thought the Penguins did a good job of initiating physically and wearing down the Red Wings and, and not putting themselves in a position where they were taking penalties. By the way, did you hear that stat? Or, uh, they were the two least penalized teams in the playoffs to that point. The fewest number of penalties up to that point in a, in a final in 64 years. That was wild. <laughs> that's a long time, 60. That's older than me. <laughs> yeah, to your point, Stag, I think there was a time when Chris Kunis actually ran Franz and he got a basically a high stick them kind of up in the face, give him a cross check up in the face. That was nothing was called. Um, but, but to your point, Josh, I, I think what was most disappointing from a Penguins perspective were the two goals were kind of self-inflicted wounds, both Detroit goals. The one Rob Scuderi has the puck and he's got all the time in the world. No one's even pressuring him. And instead of skating it out and trying to make a move and look for an open lane, he tries to force it because I think Helm took away the wall so he took his wall play, so he still tried to force it up the middle that gets intercepted and scores. And then on the goal early in the second period that gave Detroit the 2-1 lead, it was, it was the Penguins' own players double-screening Marc-Andre Fleury on the shot that ends up going in. So I think from a Penguins' perspective, obviously they know Detroit's a very good team. You can't give them those kinds of breaks. You can't make it easy on a team like that. If they're going to get a 2-1 lead, you got to make them earn it. you got to make them really uh, do – go out there and, and establish that. But the Penguins gave him two kind of easy ones. And I think that was the disappointing facet from the Penguins perspective. But I still think even down two to one, you could still see the Penguins were coming and they weren't going to relent because I think they, they got stronger as that game went on, as obviously as that period went on. 
kind of ironic, you guys, that Derry would turn the puck over in that position, as you said, with all that time, because he was on his forehand, and Scuderi played the right side with Hal Gill. He was always on his backhand, and I never saw a guy who could surgically move the puck out of his own end. Like those backhand flips off the glass, he would get them just underneath the top of the glass to get it out, but he was often in a position where he couldn't really make a play. You know, he had to just kind of get it out because he was on his backhand a lot. Now here he is on his forehand with all the time in the world, and he hands it right to the Red Wings. It was just weird <laughs> to see him do that. But it reminds me, like in football, sometimes you'll see a quarterback, and it almost looks like he has too much time, and he just goes, whoop, and he telegraphs the ball right to a defensive back. It's just it's really weird because Scuderi, that was one thing he was pretty good at, was making a you know, good first pass or at least not making uh, egregious turnovers like that. You saw, I don't know if you saw his reaction too. As soon as the puck went in the net, <laughs> he, he knew that he had screwed up. The camera caught him with some choice words for himself on the bench, if you guys saw. <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he did have a very a huge block, though, late in the third period that uh, kind of, atoned, yeah, that really kind of atoned for it. We'll get, again, we'll get there, but he, uh, he did atone for that mistake. Yeah. Sam mentioned you get a couple of self-inflicted errors on the Penguins end. First, it's that helm goal to make it a 1-1 score. Then just 46 seconds into the second period, Brad Stewart, who I feel like I've heard his name more in the last week of watching these replays than in his entire NHL career, no disrespect, uh, he scores 46 seconds in. Kind of also to Staggy's point about even though the Penguins set the, you know, the double screen unintentionally on Marc-Andre Fleury there, Detroit defensemen had a great ability of getting the puck on net, and it just seemed to be, it didn't matter. I mean, obviously you have an unbelievable world-class player at the top of the list in Nick Lidstrom, but all the way down to that third pairing, guys were getting opportunities to have offensive uh, attempts in the uh, attacking zone against the Penguins. Would you agree, Josh, that uh, just watching the game, um, you know, the emphasis has always been on blocking shots in the playoffs. Guys will, will sacrifice their bodies in playoff hockey. Did you get the feeling that there still wasn't as much emphasis on blocking shots even then as there is now? I mean, when I think of uh, how the Penguins blocked shots, for instance, in 2017, it was outrageous. I mean, they were just guys were falling left and right, you know, from, from blocking shots. Nick Benino led all forwards that year in blocked shots. I, I mean, it just seemed to me that pucks were getting through that today might not get through just because teams are that much more focused on blocking shots and maybe even. More, they were then. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, especially when you consider that was it, was it the next year that, or was it that year that when John Tortorella's shot blocking machine really started to become a thing with New York? <laughs> I think that really set the tone with guys. Some teams really took to it, some teams didn't take to it as much, but obviously we know what umbrella Mike Sullivan was under at a certain point in his career. So I think it's worth mentioning that when you talk about how it's kind of evolved throughout the years, but I think it was around that time when Tortorella had that team with Callahan and McDonough, and they just seemed to break an arm or a leg every other week blocking a shot, but they were always putting their body in front of it. You're right. Um, and by the way, Stewart, that was his second goal of the series, and Doc Emmerich gave a stat. He was Ariadzo, one of the two. It was his ninth goal against Pittsburgh in regular season or playoff hockey in his career. I mean, he was the Anton Strawman before Anton Strawman. <laughs> he was. I agree with your point, Josh, though, about the Red Wings defenseman getting shots there. I remember thinking Nick Cronwell, I mean, he would just tee it up every single time he had the chance, and probably partly because guys weren't blocking shots as much and they felt they had the opportunity to shoot more. But I think, yeah, the those guys on, on the Red Wings back end were definitely just going for it every time they had the chance, and Brad Stewart got rewarded there. How did you guys notice in the, uh, the course of the uh, second period now, Dan Bilesma, again, I mentioned it in game three, but he was definitely sprinkling Sidney Crosby around. Uh, he had him playing between Chatan and Dupuis at one point. Um, you know, I, I remember Dan Bilesma using Sid more in that capacity than I've seen Mike Sullivan use him since. And that is to say that he would sometimes double shift him on a fourth line, if you will. So that would create a, a more dangerous fourth line automatically by him having him down there. But also, uh, it was a way of him getting him away from Henrik Zetterberg, I think. So, um, but you know, Chatan and Dupuis were two skilled hockey players. I mean, Chatan had been a, a world-class offensive player, and Dupuis developed into one. I think you know, a really, really good offensive player. 
And all of a sudden now you've got Sid and Shatan and Dupuis taking the odd shift. Uh, it was kind of cool to see that. And uh, it, it also reminded me that Dupuis was not nearly the factor for the Penguins that he could have been. Uh, Dan Bilesman did not play him all that much. I'm not even thinking that he was killing penalties all that much. I mean, Craig Adams was a penalty killer, Matt Cook, Jordan Stahl, Max Talbot. I don't remember seeing Dupuis out there very much. Do you? No, I don't think he was out there. And not the entire playoffs. I feel like Shatan, uh, Sakura, and um, Dupuis were kind of the three revolving doors. Like, yes. I don't know what the rhyme or reason was at the time, but it seemed like sometimes they'd play, sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, I remember well, Shatan got sent to the minors, too. Uh, so that they could make some trade deadline moves to get like Billy Garen and such. And they made it, they basically came to him and said, Hey, uh, we're going to send you to Wilkes-Barre because we need to get under the cap. We're going to make these moves, but when the playoffs come, we're going to give you playing time. We're going to get you out there. And so I think sometimes they got him in the lineup as that promise, you know, that they had made to him and in, in the, particularly in the cup final. So, uh, and, and I, I don't think people speak enough to that because obviously Mira Shatan came to Pittsburgh thinking he was going to be the Hosa. He was the Hosa replacement, not that he was the player Hosa was, but he was the guy that was going to kind of expected to kind of fill a little bit of that void and then just didn't have the great season that everybody, I think, was hoping and expecting. And then as things went on, he was became kind of the ultimate team player, you know, whatever the team needed, including having to go down because he didn't have that big contract uh, weight. So just him going down to the minors and willing to do that, I think, speaks volumes and of him just wanting to win, you know, and, and being a team guy and all that. So. I think that gets overshadowed too. That second period, um, another thing that stood out to me was just throughout the game, really, was uh, what a force Max Talbot was. I mean, he was he was being used. He was playing with Sid at times. Uh, he played with Gino, obviously, and with Fedotenko, but it just seemed like they sprinkled him around too. And uh, you know, he had a history, Max Talbot, of even in junior, uh, of being a guy who elevated his game in the playoffs and he just lived up to that reputation in this series and in the whole playoff run but particularly obviously in this series he became a real almost legendary figure for the Penguins if you look back on it and it, it wasn't just that he scored those big goals it was he was just an effective hockey player in all facets of the game he played good defense he was a good four checker you know he, he made good plays like it's just amazing he just Took his game to a whole other level uh, when he got into the playoffs. Superstar. <laughs> you guys don't know what that is, but that was a, a car commercial that he made. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I didn't know if you guys knew the reference. Sorry, my dog was really excited about it. <laughs> Fair enough. She's, she's excited for the uh, the big momentum swing that comes up here in the second period for the Penguins. Am I right, Josh? Sorry, I'll mute myself. You guys can continue. <laughs> hey, this is what happens when you uh, record from home in these times, so it's part of it. Yeah, so I think the entire series changed in the next five minutes and 37 seconds, which is when the Penguins would score three consecutive goals. And uh, But really, you look at the shift of it, because as we kind of touched on, Getty Malkin takes a penalty, the Penguins are shorthanded. They're already down 2-1 in the game. Wait, can we sign it really quick, too? Because, Staggy, how you talked about Gino, like – Heading into scrums or whatever, I had to laugh because he gets called and he immediately just starts throwing elbows, like, starts <laughs> elbows. like, like no hesitation. He just kind of he starts mixing it up because he knows he's going to the box. So he's like, "Well, I might as well try to take someone with me," and it didn't work. But it's funny that you mentioned that earlier because that's I literally made a note of it and and laughed about it because I'm like, that's just such a Gino thing to do. Um, but sorry, Sam, go go ahead. Yeah, no, actually, my my puppers uh, decided to make a guest appearance as well, but um. Yeah, so Malkin takes the penalty, and you're already down two to one. So it's like, oh man, this is this could be a, a crucial juncture in the game. As it goes, you're five seconds away, four seconds away, three seconds away, this close to killing the penalty and getting back even strength. And Brooks Orbic takes the penalty. Uh, by the way, my favorite thing about Brooks Orbic never took a penalty he agreed with. It was a clear, literally... clear, just blatant trip, and he gets caught on it. As oh late as it gets, he still tries to argue with the referee, like. Bro, that was a trip. Just go sit. That's word for word what I wrote. I wrote Brooksy never saw a penalty he agreed with. That was a blatant trip. <laughs> oh no, and it was. It really was. And uh so so now he goes in the box, and all of a sudden you've got a situation where uh <laughs> the penguins are just really in dire straits here because 
you, you just had that big momentum swing too that you won that penalty kill and now you got to do it again so you're look, you're staring down the barrel of another two minutes and granted there's only a two second layover on this five on three so it's basically just really four straight minutes of being shorthanded so you're staring down the barrel of having to do it all over again from scratch and uh that's when uh, the big swing comes josh right Malkin comes out. That's what it happened. You take it from there. We got two Paul Steigerwalds. Steigerwalds multiplying on the uh, on the board here. <laughs> I think I think it's fair to say that everyone is anticipating this amazing moment in the final. You got dogs barking, Staggies multiplying. Uh, everything's happening here. <laughs> the dog can sense it. You know, like when they can, you know, feel like a storm. That's true. Like, like they sense storms. They they felt <laughs> storms. <laughs> You mentioned it, Sam, and we talked about it earlier. First, it's it's Evgeny Malkin really setting the tone, right? When he had that chance where he came in down the right wing, and I think it was at Franzen, it was right on top of him there, and they crashed in the end wall. Just that effort, you could feel. I, they had some great shots of Mellon after that, like a couple like wide shots. I know that was kind of all in the same sequence, but they zoomed out, and they had a couple wider angles that you could feel it in the building, and you could see the energy was there and the excitement, anticipation of what potentially could happen. And I, I give the Penguins a lot of credit because they really were, they were attackers on that penalty kill. They weren't necessarily sitting back and potentially letting Detroit take a two-goal lead. Well, what I remember was Max Talbot. You guys might not have me video-wise, but hopefully you have me audio-wise. Are you hearing me right now? Yeah, we, we can hear you. Yeah, we just can't see you. I'm sorry, guys. I, uh, my laptop, uh, you know, betrayed me for a moment. Uh, <laughs> I was afraid Your laptop happen. must be a Red Wings fan. That didn't happen when I was on my phone, so I'm back on my phone right now. But anyway, uh, Max Talbot was actually, uh, you know, uh, first of all, took the puck to the net. That was the first indication that the Penguins were on the – that's one thing I love about playoff hockey. You see that more in the playoffs than you do in the regular season. It's guys in penalty-killing situations forcing the issue and trying to create offense while they're shorthanded. It's awesome. That's why shorthanded goals tend to be scored more in the playoffs. That's why they tend to be huge. Uh Momentum changers, and I think teams actually, at times, will actually will try to go on the offense more in the playoffs when they're on uh, the penalty kill. And Talbot did it first. He was the first guy to, to try to take the puck to the net. And then uh, right after that is when Jordan Stahl decided to take it to the net. Well, it was a great play by Talbot to chip it to him, too, yeah. uh, having that awareness. And then Stahl really just makes that move around Rafalski. And, you know, it, it's impressive because he already kind of had a half step and Stahl's not the – fastest players not the fleetest of foot um he, he had some legs and Rafalski granted was at the end of a longer shift having been out there for some time so he was a little gassed but uh but stone knew that the perfect way to get around him was just to get the body position and then swoop just basically block him with his backside and uh we've seen you know jordan do that so many times throughout his career we've seen sid do it so many times once they get the angle they just cut cut to the net use their backside as almost blocking uh a pullback, if you will, to set up that shot. And then from there, he buries the shot on Osgood. And I'll tell you what, I think that was the moment where not only did it ignite the Penguins, but I think that's when the fans were like, this is our year. I think that's that was the goal. I mean, two more will come, but that was the goal that where Penguins fans said, this is it. This is our year. We are the, the better team. I think the fans believed it. The players already kind of felt that way. But I think at that point, the fans, you could, you could just feel it in the building that the Penguins fans knew this was going to be our year. Especially, too, because you think about how Detroit's power play was, you know, surgical-like with their precision the previous uh, final in 2008, and then they go on to have the best power play in the regular season uh, before the Penguins just shut it down. I mean, they didn't allow a shot in those four minutes of uh, time there for, for the Red Wings and, um, you know, just, just shut them down so hard. And especially, too, it's deflating uh, to see, you know, Brian Rafalski and Nick Lidstrom is your, you know, your top pair and for them to get, you know, turned inside out like that is. <laughs> By the way, uh, did you guys hear Edzo warned about Gino coming out of the box? Uh, I don't recall. Be careful now because Gino out of the box. And uh, like 10 seconds later, there came Gino on that semi breakaway. And, um, you know, that uh, when he was, as you said earlier, killing the penalty. So when he came out of the penalty box. So. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, Edzo you know, did a really good job there of uh, kind of giving all the fans, the viewers, a heads up about Gino coming out of the box, trying to help the Red Wings, but didn't help. <laughs> you talked about the second. I think Gino got once he got in. It was a there was a, a dump attempt that he literally just kicked away. Not only did he kick it back out, he kicked it past the Red Wing, 
So he had full speed to get around him to get that chance. Uh, yeah. Franz with a great, great back check to get back and deny him. But yeah, it was the defensive zone again, just, just reading the play, seeing that this guy was going to go on the wall and then being able to knock it, not only clear the puck, but knock it past the Red Wing player that this, whoever it was escapes me now, but just the smart heads up play by Malkin all around. And it really point. The Stahl, it just uh, overwhelmed the Rafalski there. I mean, he had no yeah. chance to stop it. I mean, with that long reach and just the way his legs were churning and uh, Rafalski was kind of flat-footed. And, uh, you know, Rafalski was a really good hockey player in his day, but I, I think that he was kind of mismatched there, if you will, uh, by Stahl, especially when he caught him flat-footed like that. He had no chance of stopping him. He was mismatched in the 2010 Olympics, too, against uh, Sidney Crosby there. <laughs> couple, uh, poor Brian Rafalski just on the, the wrong end of a couple goals there that I think Penguins fans will always remember. How about the special teams of the Penguins? They get a power play, then they get a shorthanded goal, uh, and they keep the Red Wings power play off the board. Just spectacular stuff. And um, really, the to that point in the playoffs, that was the story. The Penguins special teams were phenomenal. Yeah, Stag, I think that's the that's the big thing also when you look beyond the stall goal is that the Red Wings still were on a power play. And I mean, obviously, it's easier said than done to turn things back into your favor when you give up a shorthanded goal, you're on the road, everything that comes with that. But the Penguins still had to kill off the rest of that Red Wing power play, and they did. And as Sam mentioned earlier, they didn't even allow a shot on goal. I mean, it was, it was a pretty impressive performance, and I agree with Sam. I feel like when you look at that series, that moment, that – 30-second span, 35-second span for Malkin's chance to Stahl's goal. I mean, that was the swing. That was what everyone talks about. Yeah, because if they go behind, you know, if, if they if they don't uh, do that, um, they're in big trouble maybe. So, you know, that, that, that the, the game could have – the series could have gone in a completely different direction. So it, it isn't just that they established momentum for themselves. They, they took potential momentum away from the Red Wings. And Staggy, you talked about uh, Dan Bowsman trying to get Sid on different lines. One thing he did like to do was anytime there was a penalty kill, because of the way the lines vary up, he liked to get that two-headed monster together, Crosby and Malkin together. And that's what he did right after, as Josh said, they still, after Stahl scores, they still got to go out and kill the rest of the penalty. They do that. They get Fedotanko, Malkin, and Crosby out there, the two-headed monster. And, of course, it leads to Josh. Next goal. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. <laughs> but I, I, it's just another example, guys, of, of Evgeny Malkin creating offense for the Penguins, and it's starting in the opposite end of the ice, coming down on that two-on-one with Sid. By the way, I, I had to – I don't know, just a little thing. I'm weird, and I like these little things. But when Sid scored that goal at the side of the end, how many times have we seen that reaction from him where it's just like the hands in real tight, and he, like, gets – and then obviously he doesn't usually get just absolutely <laughs> railroaded by Chris Letang. But, uh, <laughs> With his, mouth, with his mouthpiece kind of hanging out as he's doing the uh, fist pump. Yeah, like that, that's when you know it's a big goal, I feel like, right? When you see him react like that. And obviously we know that, but that was, was another special play and good patience by the two of them also. Yeah, especially Monken because his initial pass was blocked by Erickson. And no hesitation is it because the block came right back to him and he didn't hesitate to get it over there. I mean, he was he was giving that puck to Sidney Crosby, whether Crosby wanted it or anyone wanted it or not. He, I bet if it would have got blocked a third time, he would have shot it back over there because that's how intent he was to get Sid the puck. I was so excited when Erickson blocked that initial pass. Like, watching it again, you know, just now, I remember just – I jumped out of my chair like, oh, and then I realized, uh, well, they're going to score here, so. <laughs> but, Josh, going to your point, I mean, can you only imagine how antsy Sid was just sitting on the bench for four straight minutes, you know, watching – because uh, obviously he wasn't killing at that particular sequence. And, and so I think that factors into, you know, for him, and that was his first goal of the series, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, so I think there are so many factors that just accumulated in him having that epic uh, celebration for, you know, what was a huge goal to really just, you know, cement uh, the Penguins' momentum onto their side. By the first goal of the final, right? Yes. yes it was. I don't know if you guys noticed, but you know, every time they showed Vladimir and Natalia, like Vladimir's going crazy like a little kid, you know. <laughs> so then Sid scores and they get a shot of Troy Crosby and he's completely stone faced. Like he doesn't <laughs> react at all. And, and it reminds me that, you know, that's how coaches and GMs are, you know. They just they never want to show emotion. You know, if you look you look at Jim Rutherford, when I look back at, at Craig Patrick, you know, anytime uh or Ray Shiro for that matter, anytime a GM I looked at him after a big goal, like the place would be going absolutely crazy. 
and the GM doesn't even react. He just has a completely stoned look on his face. That was the same look that Troy Crosby had on. Like he's seen it a million times from his son, but he didn't want to get too excited. I don't know what it is, but it just, it, it, I just thought it was interesting. He had no emotion whatsoever on his face after his son had just scored the first goal of the final for him. I don't think much has changed on either front, right? Between those two. <laughs> well, it's not interesting, though, because they're kind of the personalities of their fathers, too. You said, you know, yeah, Troy's, very, Troy's very serious, focused. And then, uh, you know, obviously Vlad and <laughs> Gino are both a little more fun, a little more free-spirited, a little more uh, emotional, if you will. So it is kind of funny how you see the dad's influence on the, their sons. Everyone's obviously really poured it on after that goal from Stahl, made it 2-1. to one. Excuse me, two to two, and then you have the goal from they had to make it three two, and then Tyler Kennedy. We've talked a lot about Max Talbot. We mentioned Jordan Stahl. We talked a little bit about Matt Cook. PK had himself a series at moments too in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that goal, the third goal for the Penguins in less than six minutes, and all of a sudden, I think you like you, you kind of felt where the series had swung it before that goal, but you really felt like the Penguins were on pretty solid footing. And what a finish, too, after a pretty sequence that was started by TK on the forecheck. Yep, another turnover by Rafalski. Uh, Tyler Kennedy with really fresh legs, uh, just flying. He had come on the ice on a change. So it was Crosby, Kunitz, and Kennedy on the ice together. Hey, you know, I'll tell you, maybe we don't give enough credit to Dan Bilesma because he made a lot of interesting little subtle changes uh, to his lines and jumping guys on certain times that, that seemed to just be magical at times. And uh, this was another example of that. Just a beautiful, beautiful play. And, uh, you know, Tyler Kennedy, just by having that energy that he had, I thought had a big influence on that play and then scores the goal. Yeah, well, Orpik, if you remember, Orpik pushed it ahead to get it out of the zone and the Penguins are in the middle of a change there. And at that point, Zetterberg, we talked about him being overextended all series long. He was at the end of one of his shifts. And, uh, and you're right, Tyler Kennedy jumped off the bench. You've got a tired Zetterberg trying to get back against a fresh Kennedy who's just bolting uh, full full head of speed. And Kennedy beats him to that puck and gets it to Kunis. And then the beautiful sequence again. And I think, again, it kind of looked like the Red Wings were a little tired. They were a little yeah, older. Yeah. They were just – they didn't have that extra jump. They didn't have that extra, you know, whatever, you know, je ne sais quoi that you need. Uh, the Penguins did. The Penguins had the younger legs. They were more enthused. They were more amped up. And, and you kind of saw it all fruition on that play. And, and, and one note, I think um, – Saggy brought this up in the previous game. We talked about number three. What, what stood out to me, too, was after the goal was scored and they, they did the announcement. But John Barbaro, I used to, you know, when Tyler Kennedy scored, of course, the Penguins would play that old video of the wrestler, Mr. Kennedy, who would say that was a goal from Tyler Kennedy. And then he'd step off and come back and go, Kennedy. <laughs> and remember John Barbaro used to uh, imitate that when he would make the announcement. He was like, you know, Tyler Kennedy. 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 Yeah. And I just, I just loved hearing his voice again. You know, I know we, again, we touched on the last time, but hearing him do the Kennedy call was just another, you know, man, you, you really miss that guy a lot, or at least I do. Um, I know a lot of fans do as well, but that stuck out to me too after that, uh, after that sequence. Well, I, you know, I think that there's certain lines that stand out from the different cup wins. I mean, obviously HBK is one that stands out from uh, the 16 run. And I think Cookstall Kennedy is a line that, you know, stands the test of time. And obviously, uh, TK wasn't out with his linemates on this shift in particular, but Sam and Saggy, I'm curious for your perspective because in the years after, I remember whenever Bilesma put them back together, everybody got excited, you know, the fans got amped. What was it about the three of them that worked so well and, and made them so successful as a trio? Um, I, I just think there was a the, uh, chemistry of, you know, the, the, the different ingredients that each of them brought. Um, you know, it, it was just, a, just kind of a perfect combination. Um, you know, I, I, what do you think, Sam? I mean, it's. Uh... Well, I think that, well, the one thing that they had was they were all very different players. So you yeah, had Tyler Kennedy, who was, he was very fast. He was feisty. He had uh, force, force plays. You know, if you got the puck in deep, he was coming at you at a hundred miles an hour, whether you wanted him to or not. And whether it was smart or not, like he would always try to force the puck there. And then you had, Matt Cook, who was a physical player, kind of a disturber. You know, he, he obviously, we know his past and his type of play, so he would get under players' skin. And then Jordan Stahl was just a huge body that was really strong and very defensively sound, but 
the one thing that they did really well was they were able to get into the offensive zone. Once they got there, they would just destroy you. I mean, if, if Stahl got the puck on the wall, I mean, good luck getting that puck off of him. You, you're, it's not going to do it. And uh, and if they do run out of space, if you do double team a guy like Stahl, he just flips it to a corner and Tyler Kennedy is going to be the first guy there because his speed so yep. much more than every other guy on the uh, ice. And they just had this great ability to maintain possession in the offensive zone. And you would see it in sequences, too, because they would get the puck. And then you're spending 30 seconds in your zone, and it's taking everything out of you as an opponent just to get the puck out. And as soon as you get the puck out after 30 seconds, you're so taxed, you're going right to the bench, and you have to change. So you, it, I think that was a part of the reason, too, that Dan Bowsma liked to start a lot of games with that trio because they would establish that offensive zone. They would just wear the opposing teams down early. And I think it was kind of a blend of the, the three different talents because while while they had kind of the same effect, they were all very different players and they almost complemented each other perfectly in that sense. Yeah, and I think um, you know, they were they were willing to do that. I mean, they knew what their role was. You know, they didn't, you know, you have a third line, you're basically they were proud to be third liners. So they they knew that it was uh, their job to get the puck in deep and work down low against the other team's defense. They weren't trying to be fancy. They they totally understood their roles, each one of them. And Tyler Kennedy was just having a blast playing alongside Jordan Stahl. I know that those two had good chemistry off the ice too. They were uh, they had thought of themselves as kind of a tandem. And Matt Cook was a, a guy who created a lot of space because he would he would really hit people. And they knew he was coming. You're right. It was just the fact that they were three different players who all understood their particular roles and they also understood the role of their line and they played it to a T. Ever get a nickname or were they always just Cook Stall Kennedy? Cook Stall Kennedy. <laughs> it, it, go, it sounds what good. I, what I think of was the bet their nickname became the best third line in hockey. <laughs> and they were. That was also true, yes. <laughs> and then you had a guy like Jordan Stahl. I mean let's face it, he would later Fancy himself as a player who should be playing up higher in the lineup. You know, he uh, the year the year that Crosby and Malkin both went down with injury. I mean, he basically established himself as a number one center for a while. You know, so uh, you know he he started to think of himself as being more of an offensive player, and he did have thirty goals his rookie year, uh, seven of them shorthanded, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and and I think that uh, so so what you saw was Jordan Stahl playing a role that really he might be still to this day more suited for. And even though he fancied himself as more of an offensive guy, uh, I remember Ray Shiro saying about Jordan Stahl, you win with guys like Jordan Stahl. And I look back when he was selected in the draft, I mean, they could have taken Jonathan Taves or Nicholas Baxter, who probably would have fulfilled a role for the Penguins very nicely too. But with Stahl, he was the perfect complement to Malkin and Crosby as a as a centerman on that third line. So at just at that point in time, in that point in his career, he was the perfect guy for that role on that Penguins team. I think that was a big reason why he was such a force. You know, what's interesting too, is all these years later in Carolina, back as the third line center with Ajo and Strokeback. <laughs> I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, said, I remember talking to uh, Borky about that one time, Phil Bork, and and I, and I said, you know, Jordan Stahl is going to go from the best third line center in the NHL to a mid-range to one of the lesser second line centers in the NHL, and that's kind of how it played out, unfortunately for him. And, and I think Staggy's absolutely right; like he was built to be that third line machine, just the grinder, the puck possession, the uh, offensive zone guy, the defensively responsible guy, can kill penalties, can kind of do those things, and. He did score 30 goals while playing. Ironically, he was a winger playing with Evgeny Malkin. So, you know, a lot of guys can score 30 goals with Evgeny Malkin. <laughs> Not the secret, obviously. He obviously earned it and deserved it. But, um, you know, maybe if he had tried switching the wing on a different line, I know Dan Bowser moved him around from time to time and, and tried him at wing. And sometimes they moved actually Gino. He moved Malkin to wing and played with Stahl at center. And, uh, and it was weird because they never really had that chemistry they did that first year. Um, Stag, I, I, I you know you were there and you really got to see it closely, but those two really hit it off early and they had that great run that whole season. I actually, I had forgotten that, Sam. That's a really good observation and good memory on your part that uh, he had done that. I think the reason they did that was because they felt like, A, they were needed a little bit more strength on the wing, uh, and B, they maybe felt like they were wasting Jordan Stahl as, as a third-line guy during the course of a regular season. But 
once you get to the playoffs, you know, it's a whole different animal because you're trying to shut down the other team. You, you want that depth. You want depth scoring. You want matchups, you know, to, that you can get from having better players deeper down into your lineup. So in that respect, I, I think his role became more defined uh, in playoff hockey. But, um, you know, he he uh, I, I thought that he had more offense to give. I'll be honest with you. I, I thought when Carolina made that trade and I give Jim Rutherford credit, I mean, he, he, he saw Jordan Stahl as a guy who had more offense in him. I think he honestly believed he was going to be a force offensively. And that's why he made that trade. He really believed it. And it just never came to fruition. A lot of people thought that uh, it, it just didn't work having him and his brother on the same team. There was some sibling rivalry there, something that just made it so it, it didn't come to fruition. And, um, you know, to the Penguins' benefit, they ended up with a, a good deal in that trade, uh, you know, because they got Brian Dumoulin, obviously, and, and Sutter, and, and, and uh, they were able to get a, a first-round pick, uh, which unfortunately was Derek Pouliot. But um, I, I think, you know, in the, in the looking back on it, there were a lot of people who thought Jordan Stahl had a lot more upside in him offensively, and he got a $7 million a year deal because of that potential, and it never really materialized. No, it did not. <laughs> Move forward. Uh, that's the beauty of the internet sometimes. There was a little lag there, so I apologize. Uh, so our score is 4-2. Penguins are in front. I want to get the gauge again because I feel like that's important to look back at these situations. We talk about the, the little nuances within the game, the little instances that happen throughout the 20-minute spans of periods. But there's also that feeling that you remember so clearly as a fan or you remember from covering it or you just remember from being in the building that night. Where were you guys at feeling-wise through 40 minutes, Penguins just had probably their most impressive period of the entire final right there and going up 4-2, or certainly the most impressive surge with three goals in less than six minutes. How are you guys feeling at that moment? Well, you heard Edzo make reference to the building and how loud it was. Um, kind of reminded me of some you know, moments back in the 91 and 92 playoff runs when the when the crowd and the atmosphere and the feeling was one of confidence and belief and this amazing amazing surge of of uh, energy you know from the fans the players providing these great moments that made you really feel like the penguins were on their way to doing something special but you know it, it the best part about it was that you know, you knew that the Penguins were putting themselves in a position to be even in the series and create a best of three, uh, you know, for the rest of the series. And it was so uh, there was a feeling of elation and relief because you you had seen the previous year the Penguins unable to do that. Sam mentioned it at the top of this podcast. Uh, you know, this was something the Penguins couldn't achieve the previous year, and they were doing it. Uh, and I think we all believed that there was something that could big that could happen now. Whereas we went from a feeling of, man, we can't beat these guys to, hey, I think we can beat these guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say that it couldn't be more accurate. And from the other side, uh, you know, Edzo called it a house of horrors period for Detroit. And he couldn't have been more accurate, um, you know, and then just going into that third period. I mean, I think, you know, the Red Wings had a big surge to start. But, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the the wings looking slow and, and falling down and just not looking like they had their legs. I mean, there's a point where Henrik Zetterberg, uh, he was cutting across the crease, and I don't know if he had contact with Flurry or what, but he just went down, and he was really slow to get up, and it was just an overall tough game for him going back to that turnover uh, on Kennedy's goal, and, you know, and he's the guy with Datsu Gout that you're looking to to be the, you know, the guy, and, you know, with him just in that body language, the, you know, just looked like he was fatigued. You just, you're not feeling good from from the Red Wings perspective, and I think, you know, I, I feel like the Penguins could probably sense that like you said, Saggy, they could sense they had that belief, they had that confidence, whereas it was definitely, I think, going the other way uh, for the Red Wings. What I love most about that third period was the Penguins kept coming. They didn't take their foot off the gas. They didn't sit back and try to protect a 4-2 lead. They kept coming and coming. And there was a point, um, I think Staggy mentioned it earlier, where Max Talbot had a couple great opportunities. There was about eight minutes left in the game. So it's getting close to the end, but there's about eight minutes left, and Max Talbot gets a couple great opportunities. And the noise in the building lifted at such a decibel and i think for the literally for the entire final eight minutes it stayed kind of at that point because the fans could sense that this win was coming that the Penguins are going to pull this off and other than uh and again the Penguins played so well defensively in that third period 
Um, I think Fopola had a great chance with about three minutes left. But other than that, that yeah, power. that was that was an unbelievable chance. I don't know if you remember, guys. I'm watching the game. I'm going, can I see a replay of that? Can I see a replay, please? <laughs> no replay. They never showed a replay of the save Flurry made on Fopola. And I could tell in Edzo's voice, because I know what it's like. You're in the booth and you're, you know, he's probably begging for the replay to his producer. And it never came. He never saw another look at what was right. Gigantic save in that hockey game. Valtteri Filippo, because he was right on the doorstep. The play was set up from below the goal line, and Fleury really had to be sharp on that one. That was like a, the key save that prevented the Red Wings from getting any life, because if they get that goal, there's still a few minutes to go in the game. Now, you know, you're biting your nails because they're down by only one. Yeah, and I think that was the Peng- or, sorry, the Red Wings' last gasp, because that was their last great opportunity. It was three minutes left. And then, uh, and then the, the funny thing that kind of stood out to me, too, I don't know if this stood out to you guys, but even though Detroit ended up taking the penalty, so they were shorthanded anyway. They didn't. They never pulled Chris Osgood. And, you know, there was a point where there was 50 seconds left, and they had it in the offensive zone, and Osgood never went to the bench. And I don't know if the bench never called him, if they didn't hear him, what happened there. But it, it, it almost was a telling tale, whereas it, it seemed like the Bruins were just throwing in the white towel. Like, they were just, all right, there might be a minute left, but we're, this game's over. We're, we're just going to pack it up, go back to Detroit, try to get one in Detroit. See how it goes from there. But I don't know. That really stood out to me. And, again, it might have just been happenstance. Maybe they just were fooling the tents and saying, all right, let's try to take care of business back home in game five. But you think in a Stanley Cup final game, you're going to throw everything out there that you can. So I was really surprised that they never uh, got Osgood off the ice. and got Even even though it would have just made it a five on five because they were shorthanded. But at least give yourself a fighting chance. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead Stag. Go ahead, Josh. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, you know, you mentioned uh, that they, they didn't take their foot off the gas, but at the same time, I really uh, was impressed with the Penguins' defensive posture, if you will, in the game. They, uh, you know, they they were doing a really good job structurally of making sure that they weren't, uh, you know, on the wrong side of the puck. And, if you know, I, what I remember distinctly about the Red Wings the previous year, there was never a moment on the TV screen where you didn't see all five jerseys. It was It was uncanny the way they played like a tight knit style everywhere, all three zones. And I thought the Penguins had turned into one of those teams right before our eyes. They started to become much better at being on the right side of the puck and not allowing the Red Wings to get any great chances except for that Philpola chance that stands out. And I thought, again, Helm and Cleary actually were still dangerous uh, in that third period. But, But the Penguins, without going into a shell, we're still in a good defensive posture and able to, you know, uh, vanquish the Red Wings in that third period. And Sam mentioned this in the very beginning. I think we can bring it full circle by saying this now that with that win, the script was flipped from 2008 to 2009 in the sense that the Penguins held serve on home ice. Now, we're not going to dive into game five. We'll do that ahead of game six. But from where they were at at that point in the series, that kind of a game, I remember – from a different side of the state thinking, oh no, because you could kind of see where it was going, but you guys have hit on it plenty of times that you also felt the same way for different reasons. You know, um, I did. I mean, I think we all did. You know, the only thing that was hanging over us was this, you can't beat the Red Wings in Detroit stuff. You know what I mean? We in the Detroit win a game here. And uh, so, you know, you're going into game five, hoping that's finally going to happen. You feel like you've gotten some momentum on, your, momentum on your home ice, and this is your chance to now go in there and win a game. And then, you know, we know what, what we'll talk about what happened next in our next <laughs> podcast. But a couple things. Uh, I was I had totally forgotten that games one and two were played back-to-back. Uh, you heard Doc Emmerich mention four games and six nights. Uh these are things that I had forgotten, and I think one of the reasons why it's important is because we talked about the Red Wings being tired. Um, I thought that having to play game two in a back-to-back situation for the Penguins might was not good because they didn't have time to kind of have that day in between to get their bearings and be ready for that next game. Uh, and, and the Red Wings uh, were able to take both for the first two games. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, four games and six nights is – Significant. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. You know, that doesn't happen too often in the Stanley Cup final. I, I think it's dumb, actually, but um, but uh, I do. I mean, why why when you're playing your most 
important games of the year where the, you, know, you have the national audience, would you put teams in that position? But that's what they did. All right. All right. That, about, that about wraps it up, huh? I'm looking for something. There's another thing uh, I, I thought of during the game. I just wanted to point this out. I, I, I don't know uh, if you guys remember, but uh, when they would get shots of the Detroit bench, and Michelle, you certainly know this, uh, you, would, you would see their assistant coach, Brad McCrimmon, and uh, he would later perish in that horrible plane crash for the Yaroslavl team in Russia. Uh, he was their coach. So when I saw that, I, that immediately came rushing back to me that he was the assistant coach to Mike Babcock, later became the head coach of that Yaroslavl team. And uh, I just thought I'd point that out. It was just something that struck me as I was watching the telecast. Yeah, it was crazy. And to kind of not to go off on too big of a tangent, but to your point on that, Stag, they, they had some re-airs and replays of some of the stuff from the 2010 Olympics and just seeing, you know, Pavel Dimitra and some other players on the ice in those Olympic games, you, it kind of was eerie to watch them. So. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention that because he was a, you know, he was a, uh, a really good player. Uh, he was obviously a, a, a guy who was probably destined to be a head coach in the National Hockey League someday. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, just a, I don't like to put a damper on things, but I just thought, you know, uh, I wanted to give him his props too, as a guy who was, you know, a, probably a important member of their staff and, uh, just seeing him on that bench just, uh, made me kind of feel sad. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but I, I noticed it during the games. Mike Babcock had a pretty impressive coaching tree. Those people were all hands on deck to get ready for game number five back in Detroit as this series shifted back to Motown and Michelle's friendly confines after the Penguins held serve, winning the first or second two games in Pittsburgh. Louie the Beagle making an appearance. He's ready to see what happens. We're going to pretend like we don't know what happens. And we're so excited to go into Joe Louis Arena game five and, of course, recap that and game number six with you when we talk to you next. I want to make sure I'm right on this, guys, next week, right? We'll be giving you game six. Okay. That's when you'll catch the next episode of the Scoop Rewind presented by PPG. In the meantime, I want to thank Paul Staggerwall, Michelle Crackiola, Sam Kassan, and Louis the Beagle. I'm Josh Getzoff. Thanks for tuning in, and we will catch you next week as we look back on game number six. <laughs> Boy.